I'm thankful for the aroma of worship in song and testimony. It, uh, sometimes it might feel like if you were to imagine sharing testimony, what God is doing in your heart and your family and your worship, that it's a solo. It's not a solo. There were so many people caught up in both of those stories and so many connections. And, you know, as Bill is speaking, I'm thinking about Deborah and I'm thinking how this is playing out in their home. And as uh, Marie speaking, I'm thinking about all the people that are connected, many of which she shared to that story. It's no solo. It's a, man, it's a sweet time of corporate expression of the greatness of our God. And He is good. Let's start with prayer. Lord, uh, first of all, this morning, I just feel like we need to um, tell you thank you. Thank you for giving us song. Thank you for giving us opportunity to express true things about you back to you. Thankful for the impact that melody and music has on us and our worship, that it stirs us and readies us to enjoy you. I'm thankful for the words behind many of the songs that we sing that are testimony of worship being lived out and truth connecting in someone's life. And I'm thankful that in some ways we had a chance to hear a couple of songs minus the music this morning of what you have done and what you are doing through a journey together through your good and sufficient and complete and life-altering, motive-revealing, true Word of God. Thankful that we don't need a light show. We don't need to entertain. I'm thankful that you deliver just through the faithful weekly exposition of your Word, bathed with prayer that you will guide us to walk in what we've heard. Just thankful for the encouragement this morning. It compels me to stand and deliver this morning. Lord, also this morning, we want to pray for another church in our community and pray for this pastor and his wife. I want to pray for James Gilbert and his family as he pastors Bethel AME in Greenville. Lord, I'm thankful for the new relationship that we have with them of possible partnership definite partnership in burden and in desire for the kingdom to grow and expand and to invade downtown and the north side of town, a possible partnership in praying together and serving together, engaging downtown and the north side of town together as a people, as a unified people, even in two different churches. Lord, I pray for James and his worship. I pray that right now that the sermon that he is either about to deliver or is delivering, that it is something that has impacted his life and that has been um, lived out and applied and walked in at home. I pray that his wife and children see what the gospel looks like. I pray that you would guard him from just doing a job. But I pray that what he does will be fueled by worship week in and week out. Thankful for the privilege of serving alongside James and his family and Bethel AME in this community. Lord, in these next few minutes, I confess to you in front of your people um, some concern over how this sermon uh, has, has come together. And I'm thankful that, thankful that um, <clears throat> you're the preacher. Thankful that the Holy Spirit exposes and renews and refines and equips. I'm thankful it's not up to me. I'm thankful that right now as we begin to climb into your word that I can draw on the reality that your son, our Lord, is seated at your right hand and that he is in session and he is reigning and ruling. So I preach in view of that dominion. I pray that we will hear in view of that dominion this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you would, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. By practice, not by rule, 
we typically move through books of the Bible at Crosspoint, preaching verse by verse through a book. And that's by practice, but not by rule, because there are times, occasions where we might have a topical series of sermons. When I say topical, I mean that there's an issue that we have in front of us where we want to go to God's Word and see what God has said or what He is saying about that topic. I I prefer the former because I find that He really, as a practice, gives us a healthier balance. I think we eat our vegetables, so to speak, and take our vitamins when we move verse by verse through a book. So we tend to eat some things that we wouldn't normally otherwise, but... Yet those times where we've stepped away to engage a topic, the Lord is really blessed. And this month, in the month of July, there's a possibility the month of July, which is the month of conflict, may end up being the month and a half of conflict. (laughs) Slight possibility. I know that would be surprising for each of you that we might actually have a couple more sermons in there. But this morning, we are moving into what is our, our fourth installment in this month of conflict. The first Sunday in July, we considered the fact that conflict, as it surrounds us, we don't have to go looking for it, it finds us, that first of all, conflict is an opportunity for God to be glorified. I don't know about you, but in my life, prior to sort of being equipped with these sort of realities, conflict was just something to avoid. And it was something, too, that if it was there, we just play like it, played like it wasn't there. And that's what good Christians do. We smile at each other, and then we move on. And then we just try and overlook everything and can't figure out why that doesn't really work. But the first thing we considered is that conflict is not something to avoid, but conflict is not something to go seek out either. But not if it shows up, but when it shows up, we can first of all know as an established foundation is that God can and will be glorified through it. If God works all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose, then conflict can be included in that all thing. It should be. So that mess of a relationship that you've had or that you have or that seems to be sort of unfolding, you can put in there and know that God is sovereign over that relationship. God's not snoozing and Satan's not winning. God's always winning. And God can and will use that for his own glory. So in this situation of conflict, first of all, you can exhale and look for God's glory in it. The second Sunday in this month, in this series of sermons, we considered that conflict is an opportunity to serve others. Scott Sutton preached this sermon a couple of weeks ago, and he sort of developed this continuum of response to conflict. On one end is conflict, uh, peace-breaking where you go after someone and you attack someone, the worst of which would be murder. You don't have to murder somebody to come back this side of that to go after them and attack them. That's one end of the continuum. The other end of the continuum is peace faking, where we either act like it's not there or we completely avoid the relationship and leave the relationship, the worst of which would be suicide. God developed this continuum and pointed out that both of these ends of possible responses, they don't glorify God, first of all. And second of all, they don't serve the other person. So Scott developed this sweet spot here in this continuum, in this middle spot where you could possibly even, for the glory of God, overlook an offense. It is possible to do so. Not necessarily possible to overlook every offense, though. And there may be occasions where reconciliation is the next step. And reconciliation might be something that two people can do between each other, or it might be something that grows to mediation where you need someone else to help you with it. But that center sweet spot is a place where God is glorified and a place where you serve others by working through the conflict This last Sunday, we considered sort of a building block approach to this issue of conflict. This last Sunday, we considered that conflict is an opportunity to grow to be like Christ. In order to grow to be like Christ, you have to first of all reckon with the reality that you're not like Christ. If you find yourself in conflict, you have to know that not always, because there may be occasions where you are actually being like Christ and have found yourself in the fiery trial, and don't be surprised. But I find more often than not that we find ourselves in conflict because both parties 
or one or the other is not acting like Christ. So we have to reckon with the reality that we're not like Christ and that ironically, conflict is the strange, homely escort to growing to be like Christ. James chapter one says this, verse two, listen. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Insert conflict in there. Insert your own conflict. Whatever you're going through or whatever you have gone through, stick it in there. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The very thing that you could potentially try and avoid is the very thing that God is going to use to grow you to be like him. The very thing you could potentially play like is not there is the very thing that he's going to use to grow you to be like Christ. Should give you a whole new set of eyes where you don't say, oh, good, let me find some conflict. But instead where you go, oh, God will get his glory in this. And God has placed me in it through his sovereign will and work. And I, through this conflict, can grow to be more like Christ. Man, that's good medicine right there. Just if we stopped right there, it would be three quarters of a month of conflict. It would still be good. But this morning, we're going to move to the next installment. Conflict is an opportunity for confession. Next week, Scott will be preaching what is really kind of part two of this confession thing, which is forgiveness. Those go together. And together, they are in that sweet spot of God-glorifying reconciliation. You've been paying attention. You've been seeing the extremes. Peace breaking where you go after somebody. Peace faking where you act like it's not even there or you bail on the relationship altogether. This is the how-to for that sweet middle spot. Reconciliation is made up of confession and forgiveness. Now, I'm gonna have three parts to this message and I'm gonna give you kind of a map so you know where we're going. So if you get sort of like, I'm not sure where we are, you can go back to that map and go, okay, here's where we are. Here's where we fit so I can re-engage because this is good equipment this morning. You need it. The first part of this sermon, we're gonna deal with the fact that repentance is the very first part of confession and what repentance actually is. Secondly, we're gonna deal with what makes up a good confession. And third, What are the rich, awesome, crazy, sweet blessings of confession? Okay, so the first is repentance. Second is what makes up a good confession. And third is the sweet blessings of confession. I have you in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 because that's sort of what I would call our focal passage this morning. We're going to various spots. But this is going to be sort of a go-to passage for us this morning. Let me give you a little bit of context. If you've read your New Testaments, you've spent some time in First and Second Corinthians, you probably know that the Corinthian church was a mess. Now, some background for you for the Corinthian church. The Corinthian church was planted by Paul and what I would call an A-team of church planters. There's Paul, Luke, Silas, Timothy, and Aquila and Priscilla. Now, if we were thinking about cross points, thinking about planting a church, and we had a team of people go out like that, we'd be like, oh, man, that church is going to be awesome. And then we look at the Corinthian church and go, oh, well, we can't blame it on the A-team because they had the A-team planting them. Something else that's true about this church is that I don't know that Paul visited any other church as much as he visited the Corinthians. He made three in-person visits to the church at Corinth. I haven't studied how many other times he visited other places, but I don't know that he visited Corinth, any any other place more than he visited Corinth. So Corinth had the A-team planting them. Corinth also had um, three specific visits by the lead planter, Paul. And Corinth also had the most letters that I know of. We only have two in our Bible, but you need to know that those two, two letters give us clues about some other letters. And we believe that there are four letters written to the church at Corinth. Four. The first one we don't have. Even though your Bible says 1 Corinthians, that's actually 2 Corinthians. See, I told you this is going to be a little bit complicated. That's actually the second letter to the church at Corinth. And then between the first and second letter that you have in your Bible, which is really the second and fourth, there was a third letter that's called the severe letter or the letter of tears. 
don't have that letter either. This passage that I'm going to read to you this morning is in reference to the letter of tears or the severe letter or the third letter. Okay, I'm going to start reading in a section and I'll sort of explain as we go. Chapter 7, verse 2. And let me tell you, too, let me prepare you. If you're a parent or a businessman or businesswoman or you're in some sort of setting where you need to make decisions, you're in ministry, you need to make decisions about, is this person really repentant? This is going to be good medicine for you. This is a serious equipping passage. Okay, a little heads up there. All right. Second, or Second Corinthians chapter 7, verse 2. Make room in your hearts for us. Paul writing to the church. Remember, this is the fourth letter to the church at Corinth, the second one that we have in our Bible. Make room in your hearts for us. We've wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We've taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you're in our hearts to die together and to live together. Paul has such affection for this mess of a church. He starts his letter by thanking them for the grace of God that's on display in them. You need to know that's not really a compliment. If somebody tells you, man, I'm so thankful that grace of God is so on display in you, just know that that's like, ooh, really? But he has such affection for this church. I'm acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you, the Corinthians. I'm filled with comfort In all our affliction, I'm overflowing with joy. Now, part of the reason he's experiencing this joy is because he sent a man named Titus to go get a report on how the Corinthians are doing. And Titus comes back with a really good report. And that's what we're getting right here. Paul says, even when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. We were afflicted at every turn, fighting without Um, and fear within, but God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus because Titus is bringing a good report about the messiest church in our New Testament. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, and your zeal for me. Now, let me develop this context a little bit more for you. Paul is going to be writing here in these next few words, are describing how the Corinthian church, via Titus' report, has responded to a previous wrong. Someone in the church has wronged the Apostle Paul, whether they've been uh, disobedient or disrespectful or just ugly. I mean, you think all the possibilities there. Someone in the church has seriously wronged Paul. Possibly it's the guy that was caught in sexual sin in, in, in the first letter of Corinthians, the guy that was sleeping with his mother-in-law. We don't know that for sure, but possibly it's the same person. But the reason this, le- this church got the severe letter that was really a serious confrontation is because the church as a whole was sinful in the way that they didn't deal with it or the way they did. They dealt with it sinfully. The whole church was party to this sin, even though it's the one guy that slept with his mother-in-law, if it's that that guy. So Paul is dealing with that, and he's saying, now you have longing and mourning and zeal for me. Now realize that Paul, as he's going to start talking here, he's going to talk about something called called repentance. And he's talking primarily in the horizontal direction, some details that are characteristic of real repentance, but he's talking about how you're going to react toward me. Okay, listen as it develops. I was comforted by you, or Titus was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even though I made you grieve with my severe letter, a.k.a. I chewed your backside with a letter. I don't regret it, though I did regret it at the time. It was a hard letter to write, and I really regretted it, but seeing what God did with it, I don't regret it. For I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice hearing Titus's report, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. That's what the rest of this little section is going to be about. It's going to be the anatomy of repentance. 
For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance. If you make notes in your, in your Bible or if you have a little notebook there, write down godly grief and then write next, down, next to it, write down worldly grief. Paul is about to contrast the two of those. One, I would say, leads to repentance and one, you would say, is just pure old remorse. Parents, I hope parents are paying attention right now. You want to figure out if your kid is repentant or not? This is equipping Ministry, grandparents, whoever you are, business owner, you want to figure out if somebody's repentant, this is going to be seriously equipping. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Now, here's the godly grief sort of exposed. For see what, there's seven Greek words here. And I'll just tell you what the English words are. I'm not going to deal with the Greek words. For see what earnestness, that's number one. See what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. But also what eagerness to clear yourselves. That's the second word, eagerness to clear yourselves. It takes more English words to represent one Greek word, not the other way around. The third is what indignation. Fourth is what fear Fifth is what longing. Sixth is what zeal. And seventh is what punishment. Now keep in mind, I told you, this is horizontal dealing. Where Paul is saying, you have wronged me, church. And here, according to Titus, is how you have responded. You have responded with earnestness. You have responded with an eagerness to clear yourselves. You've responded with indignation at the sin and how we as a church responded indignation at our own sin. You've responded with fear. Now, we don't know if that fear was because of they were fearful of what an apostle could do for them or do to them, or if it was fear of the Lord. It's likely a combination of the two. What longing, that's longing for them to see Paul again. What zeal, that's zeal for restoration of the relationship. And what punishment is the last thing. What punishment is they're going to even take the consequences embracing the consequences of their own sin. That's characteristic of repentance. Now, let me contrast it a little more. Contrast it just a tad more. Worldly grief that leads to death has more to do with getting caught and more to do with the unpleasant result of sinful actions than it does about the restoration of the relationship. Worldly grief would be like financial loss or a broken marriage or a damaged reputation. Really, all that person wants in their worldly grief is I want those things back. I want that country music song to play backwards. I want my job back. I want my wife back. I want my truck back. That's all worldly grief wants. It's selfish at heart. Who wouldn't feel regretful losing all those things? Regret and repentance are two different things. The reality is though worldly sorrow fades and people return right back to their old ways like a dog returns to its own vomit. That's worldly grief. It's what I would call remorse and regret. But then there's godly grief that leads to repentance. The tears look the same. This is the hard part about counseling. The tears look the same. They're wet and have salt in them. And people using up Kleenex. Man, regret, worldly grief, it looks just like repentance. Initially. Initially, they look the same, but over time, some things play out. Over time, worldly grief fades, and godly grief actually grows earnest. That word there means diligent. Godly grief grows Diligent and earnest. Godly grief is eager to clear things up. Godly grief is indignant at what you've done. I cannot believe what I have done to you in this conflict. Godly grief fears the Lord or even has reverence toward the person wronged. Godly grief longs for restoration over time. Godly grief is zealous for restoration. 
And godly grief even accepts the punishment or the consequences for their sin. Godly grief produces some things that you see there, and it leads to something even better than playing that country music song backwards. Godly grief leads and produces repentance and leads to the reality that the sin that caused the conflict is dealt with. That's even better than getting your stuff back. It makes you more like Christ. It makes you a salty, bright, aromatic witness. It changes you. It's more than just reconciling the conflict. It is changing you. Now, as I studied this passage, the 2 Corinthians passage, and I see Paul dealing with these things that are very horizontal, there are a few things that struck me. First of all, it struck me that we have such a thorough picture of dealing with repentance with another person in our Bible. I've studied the passage before, and I never realized this is more horizontal. These ingredients, these seven things that Paul's talking about, he's talking about, you had these things toward me. According to Titus, these things have happened in you toward me. It seems that Godward repentance that doesn't play out horizontally is a farce. You hear what I'm saying there? Godly repentance that doesn't have some sort of application with some horizontal things is a farce. You say, oh man, I'm so repentant. Well, show me. It's going to have a tell. It's going to play out. Paul doesn't differentiate between salvation, in fact, and righting a wrong between church folk. Man, we do, don't we? We get all Gnostic. I talk about Gnostics so many times where we separate the physical from the spiritual. That's what the Gnostics were guilty of. And I see it so often in myself and the way we do church and the way we counsel, the way we walk in things, separating the physical from the spiritual. Man, all spiritual. I love Jesus, yet I got no use for that dude. I'm done with him. I love Jesus. I got no use. No more time I'm going to spend on that marriage though. What? Paul doesn't differentiate between the two. Relationships are the soil for salvation to grow. Paul doesn't separate them. So why should we? Now, repentance. If you've listened so far, you're like, man, that sounds like something I really want in myself. If I find myself in conflict, it's something I want to see in my children. If I see my children crossways with each other, it's something I want to see in two friends. Maybe it's a husband and wife that you're friends with, whether you see their marriage going south. You want to see repentance fostered between them and taking place between them, pray for it. It's not something that you can muster, and it's not even something they can muster. You might be hearing it so far, and you're like, man, that sounds like really good stuff. I want me some repentance. Emphasis using bad grammar. Listen to this passage from 2 Timothy. It's interesting that it's Timothy, one of the church planners for Corinth. I wonder if he saw this played out, where Paul is writing Timothy about this. Paul may be writing Timothy about this very issue. Listen to what he says. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, Correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. Who gives repentance? God does. You don't have it in you. You can't muster it. You can grit your teeth. Yeah, I'm going to repent. Mm, mm. It comes from God. Now, the danger in sharing that is the danger of someone thinking, well, I'm just going to be kind of caught up like a robot then. I'm going to. I am sorry, I don't feel it, but God is working it in me. When I say God gives it, I'm saying that you step off in that direction, you walk out in that direction, you bathe it in prayer, you pursue it with everything in you, and if it shows up, know that God did it, every bit of it. So we're talking about repentance that will lead to confession. We're about to get to confession. Know that God is the giver of it. It comes from God through and through. Work toward it knowing that it's a gift from him. Don't stay idle waiting on God to get it done. Now, second part of the message. 
some important elements of a proper confession. The reason you might see a disconnect between repentance and confession, but what you're about to see is much of our reference for what makes up a good confession is found in 2 Corinthians 7, where we just were. There's almost the implication that Paul has heard a confession via Titus. A lot of the things that he's reporting here, man, I'm thankful for earnestness. I'm thankful for uh, eagerness to clear yourselves, indignation, fear, longing, zeal, punishment. That must have come from a confession that Titus carried back to Paul. That, hey, here's what they said. So we're going to deal right now with what makes up a good confession because there is such thing as a crummy one. It goes like this. Man, I'm sorry if I've done anything wrong. Is that an apology? It doesn't even own that you've done, if. If I've done anything wrong, I'm sorry. I'm just giving this blanket apology, just kind of cover everything. I'm sorry if you got your feelings hurt. Wait, was that, was that you actually saying I'm sorry, or is that you saying I'm sorry you got your feelings hurt? There is this thing as crummy confession, so we're going to deal with, for the majority this morning, or the majority of the remainder of our time, Seven elements of a proper confession. It's a nice response to seven words that Paul identified that was going on in Corinth. Now, they don't match equally, but it's kind of cool, seven and seven, because that's a good number, right? Okay. And they all start with A, too. You need to know that it's especially inspired if the alliteration's going on. You're laughing like that's not true, but it's true. Okay, the first one, address everyone involved. A good confession will address everyone involved. And one party that's always going to be involved if you've wronged someone else is going to be God, and he's often left out of a confession, ironically. Listen to this, Psalm 32, 5. I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Don't leave God out of your confession. If you've wronged someone else, you've wronged God. And then there's the second part of that confession that's gonna be horizontal. Listen to this passage from Acts chapter 19. You don't need to, there are places I'm gonna have you turn, but I'm, uh, you can jot this down if you'd like. I don't, I don't need you to turn there. Acts chapter 19, verse 18, Paul has been working in Ephesus. He's planted a church there. And listen to what's going on, what's characteristic of this church in verse 18. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices, implying that they need confession, implying that they're wicked or sinful or evil. And a number of those who had practiced magic, arts, brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. The thing I want you to see right there is that that's characteristic of the church is that we are confessing in the horizontal direction. If you have some practices you need to divulge, then that has a horizontal trajectory as well. Address everyone involved. Secondly, avoid if, but, or maybe. Turn to Luke chapter 6. I like this one because I, you know, I'm going to just tell you, I have always struggled with a confession that has a but in it. Uh, Here are some examples. You might, I'm not sure what that sounds like. I bet you've heard one. I'm sorry if you're sorry. There's an if. I'm sorry, but I wouldn't have done this if you hadn't done that. That's not a confession. That's really an attack. Here's another one. Maybe I'd be sorry if you'd promised to quit doing what you're doing. If a confession has if, but, or maybe in it, you need to know that's not a real confession. If you're on the receiving end of those, you have to deal with the reality. You're not satisfied. This has happened. I cannot tell you how many times Christy and I have had this conversation in our marriage. We just in the last few years have gotten to a point where we can honestly say, I'm sorry, period. I'm serious. I can't, I mean, Christy and I, we, I mean, talk to her about this. She could testify. There'd be another testimony up here. Every single time, it's I'm sorry, 
but, and I'm never satisfied. Or it can flip around the other way. If it has an if, but, or maybe in it, it is not a good confession because it implies part attack. Listen to Luke chapter 6. It's a passage we read last week, so it should be somewhat familiar to you. Uh, Chapter 6, starting in verse 37. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Now, this passage, again, I shared last week, is not saying thou shalt never judge those in the church, because it has to be synthesized with 1 Corinthians 5, a passage that may be dealing with the guy that Paul was talking about, the sinful guy. Go read that passage if you didn't hear the sermon last week, or go hear the sermon. Judge not, and you will not be judged. This passage is more about telling you how to deal with sin in each other than it is saying don't deal with sin in each other. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you'll be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. Will, will, Will it be put in your lap? For with the measure you use it, it will be measured back to you. And then he tells them a parable, a good one. Can a blind man lead a blind man? He's assuming, obviously, no. Will they not both fall into a pit? Yes. A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he's fully trained, will be like his teacher. He's implying that this thing, this process they're going to be working through here is the thing that's going to teach them to be more like Christ. You're not above your teacher. This thing that he's giving a parable about right now is going to be the very escort that we mentioned early on is the escort of conflict is a homely escort to being like Christ, but it is one nonetheless. Verse 41, he says this, why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? He says it like it's normative. That's the human way. Left to your own device without being refined and equipped and shaped and renewed by the word of God and the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, that's the way you're going to move. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye and not notice the log in your own eye? That's normative. How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck that's in your own eye when you yourself don't see the log that's in your own? You hypocrite. That's the hypocrite that moves that way. Here's how we are to move. First, take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck that is in your brother's eye. You see, there's still this process of speck removal, but it is a process and it deals with a first. First things first. Completely get that log out of your own eye, then go and deal with the speck. That's a great passage for amplifying or at least exposing this thing that's how important it is to leave an if, but, or maybe out. First, focus on your own sin before you deal with the speck in another's eye. The problem is a lot of times we think, well, I've already dealt with my own stuff, so I'm going to go right for the speck. There's a priority of work here. Don't even think about dealing with their speck till you've removed the log. If your confession has an if, but, or maybe, it means your confession is part speck removal. It's got some speck removing going on in there. Write out your confession next time you need to confess somebody, somebody, something, which I hope that will be an outflow of something like this, this sermon. Write it down. If it's got an if, but, or maybe in it, mm, you're trying to fix somebody else with your confession. It's supposed to be about you getting your log out. Don't do it. Next, admit specifically. While we're still here in Luke chapter 6, Admit specifically is the next step or the next ingredient of a good, healthy confession. I can't make a massive case for this. But as I'm reading this parable about the logs and the specks, specks and logs sound pretty specific to me, especially a speck. You know, you see a little tiny thing in someone's eye. It sounds like and seems like some specific issue, some you're doing that really bothers me. You are not cleaning up the kitchen after you make your own meal. I mean, it sounds specific to me. I can't make a massive case for it, but as I think about the therapy of hearing someone share specifics in a confession, then I'm thinking, man, it sure makes a lot of sense. You understand the difference when someone says, I'm sorry for whatever I may have done. 
contrasted with, I'm sorry specifically for how I hurt you. I have really self-examined and I know exactly what I've done. I hurt you by not listening to you today and assuming I knew what you were thinking and what you were after. That's very different from, I'm sorry and I don't want to talk about it anymore. How many times have you said it or heard it? I'm sorry. It's not an apology. Or how many times have you said from someone who's heartfelt that doesn't know how to give a good confession, I'm sorry for whatever I may have done. It doesn't satisfy, does it? It's like you have a wound on your arm where someone closes their eyes and grabs a tube of Novocaine or what, 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 what's it? I'm thinking it, methylate or mercurial methylate, huh? Neosporin, that's good, that's good. You got a tube of Neosporin, good. Thank you for bailing me out. I was dying up here. Neosporin, you're like, man, I got this, you know, Daniel comes to me, I got this wound on my arm, okay, and I close my eyes and just kind of squirt something out on his arm. It might bump up into it, but probably not. It's going to be kind of around it. When you don't admit specifics in a confession, you're just kind of squirting it on there and hoping you put medicine on the wound. But man, when you say specifically, I hurt you by raising my voice at you and bullying you, that's very different from, I'm sorry if I've done anything to hurt your feelings. Isn't it? Man, again, I can't make a case for it, but it sure plays out well. I hurt you by withholding affection and by being distant and cool. Isn't that easier to receive than I'm sorry if I've done anything? Makes me think about some of these words that we bumped into in 2 Corinthians 7. What earnestness one comes to mind. That word diligence. What earnestness, this characteristic of true repentance. It's the effort characteristic of those who are truly repentant. There's effort and diligence and earnestness in examining exactly what you've done to hurt another. And it's good medicine when it's heard. When it's heard, man, that uh, neosporin goes right on the wound. And the pain goes away. Next, acknowledge the hurt. Philippians chapter 2 says this, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. When you've hurt someone else in a conflict and you admit specifically and then acknowledge their hurt, you're not a Martian for being hurt. I shared with you before, that's my baggage that I brought into my experience of conflict that I, rose, that I was raised with. If I was hurt for some reason, reason something, somebody, my brothers did something to me or something that happened to me, if I was hurt for some reason, I was like a Martian. If I tried to express it, what's wrong with you? There's something wrong with you. But when you acknowledge the hurt in a confession, you're saying to that person, you're not a Martian for being hurt over this. I acknowledge your hurt. I am counting you more significant than myself as I examine what I've done to you. And I'm acknowledging your pain. And it's legit. Your pain is legit. It makes me think of 2 Corinthians 7. What indignation. This indignation over the sin that I brought to this relationship, that I escorted into this conflict. There's anger aroused by an offense or an injustice, and it just happens to be your own. When you're acknowledging the hurt, indignation at your own sin is a nice connection. It fuels acknowledging their hurt. The next is accept the consequences. Another word from the 2 Corinthians 7 passage, what punishment. Paul heard from Titus that the Corinthian church was truly repentant when one of those, that number seven ingredient that he heard is what punishment. If you want to know if your children are truly repentant, if you want to know if someone's truly repentant, you have to deal with how they're going to deal with punishment. Are they just saying, I'm sorry, so they don't get punished anymore? Are they saying, I'm sorry, and I will willfully walk through whatever's in store for me because of what I've done? Maybe it's jail time. Sound drastic? 
Maybe it's jail time. Maybe it's um, losing some money, like a lot of money. Maybe it's a large expense as a result of you bringing a confession to this conflict. Maybe it's breaking someone's heart if you bring a confession to the conflict. Or maybe, potentially, it's not being forgiven. That's got to be part of your confession. It's accepting the consequences that maybe you're not forgiven, either on the spot or maybe ever. You can't control the other person. But you know what? You walk into it saying, I'll, I'll accept the consequences. This sin that I'm confessing is on me, and I will take the consequences, whatever they might be. Luke chapter 15, since you're in Luke, just turn over a few pages to Luke chapter 15, a beautiful confession, one worth looking at. As you're turning there, I'm going to start reading, but where I want you to focus is in verse 17, but I'm going to start reading in verse 11 while you're turning. There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of my property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. Okay, you can insert your own thing in there, likely. Maybe something you squandered. Maybe you've actually squandered an inheritance. I mean, maybe it's a direct application. Maybe you squandered a marriage. You squandered the affection that was given to you by your spouse. Maybe you squandered something in business or in a relationship. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. Need is a great escort to repentance. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. Hmm, good job. And he's longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven. You hear acknowledge all involved. Address everyone involved. I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Consequences of my sin is that maybe I won't even be called your son anymore. Instead, treat me as one of your hired servants. A real confession says, I will take the consequences for my sin, whatever they might be. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Next, alter your behavior. Listen to these passages I'll share with you quickly. In Matthew chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. John the Baptist, I, I make a point not to shave anytime I mention John the Baptist, but I shaved yesterday, so I'm bumming about that. But we'll just play like I have fur on my face because John the Baptist was manly. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Repentance, if legit, is going to have some fruit. Listen to this passage from Acts chapter 26. Paul is giving an account before King Agrippa. And listen to what he says in verse 19. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, speaking about his Damascus Road experience, but declared first to those in Damascus and then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles. He's going to tell, he's summarizing for King Agrippa what all his ministry has been about, that they should repent and turn to God. Everybody would say, yeah, man, I got that. I've done that, in fact. I like that performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. That would agree with James. Show me your faith by your works, because faith works. Some people think that Paul and James were on completely different sides, where Paul's focused on grace alone, by faith alone, which he was, but not at the expense of deeds. He says it right here before King Agrippa. 
Man, they're both true. They should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with repentance. A confession, I'm going to tell you right now, is pretty worthless when it's coupled with no effort, no deeds, no fruit, no change in behavior, no show that what's coming out of the mouth has actually found a home in the heart. I'll tell you right now, a confession is bankrupt and lame and empty, empty words, if it's not coupled with altered behavior over time. And then lastly, ask for forgiveness and allow time. Ask for forgiveness means ask for forgiveness. To actually say the words, will you forgive me? When I was a kid, I grew up watching Happy Days, dating myself a little bit. Some of y'all don't even know what Happy Days is, but some of you do. So some of you really enjoy this, this illustration. The others of you can just imagine what it might mean. Happy Days, the Fonzie was one of the main characters, and Fonzie could never say, I'm, I was wrong. You might remember those episodes? I was, I was, he just couldn't say it. And man, Fonzie's the guy I was thinking of at times where some of us just can't say the words, will you, no, say it. Will you forgive me? I was wrong. What good words. Will you forgive me? Ask for it. And then give that person that you've hurt time. Give them time. One of the consequences of your sin might be that it takes some time. They might right there on the spot and say, oh man, I didn't even think anything about that. And you find they overlooked it. Or one of it might be where they say, I need some time. Give it to them. Give them some space. Joseph's story is one of my favorites and it's one that it's a beautiful picture of forgiveness. His brother sold him into slavery after beating him up. He goes, works as a slave for Potiphar and is lied about by Potiphar's wife, goes off to prison. He's forgotten about in prison, climbs the ladder eventually after he's free, climbs the, the Egyptian ladder and ends up working for Pharaoh. Great things happen. And later his brothers stand before him because they're experiencing famine in Canaan and they need some grub. And though this took place over just a couple of chapters at the book at the end of Genesis, this place at the end where he says, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? Of course I forgive you. That was born over years. Over years. Give forgiveness some time. Man, those seven things are sweet. Address everyone involved. Avoid if, but, or maybe. Admit specifically. Acknowledge the hurt. Accept the consequences. Alter your behavior. Ask for forgiveness. And implied in that, allow time. I'm going to tell you right now, these things break down if you're unwilling to examine yourself. If you find yourself in a conflict and you go, man, I cannot take my eyes off what they've done. Forget about it. You're not going to find reconciliation. But if you can let the Lord deal with them, and you can just deal with what have I done in this thing? Man, there's some good tools right here. Good tools, and there's some sweet promises for the confessor. I'm going to close with the third thing that's much shorter, very brief. Confession is a natural outflow of repentance, and when it's done well, there's some sweet blessings in store. Listen to these three passages. Can jot them down. First John 1, 8 and 9. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Hear that when I said what I just said about conflict. I mean, I wasn't the sinner in this thing. I didn't do anything wrong. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, though, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's good medicine right there. James 5, 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that or so that or in order that you may be 
healed. That's good. That's another good word. I like that word. Proverbs 28, 13, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. Hear that, will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Mercy. The blessings for the confessor, forgiveness, cleansing, healing, and mercy. I will take that over any satisfaction that I get over punishing you over your sin. You think that's satisfying when you're in conflict with somebody? And you're in that place where you're punishing them, you're withholding affection, you're doing whatever you might be doing as a result of their sin. Is that satisfying? Really? It might be for a couple minutes. But it's not satisfying in the long haul. Confession is, though. Confession brings forgiveness, cleansing, healing, and mercy. What an awesome people who are characterized by self-examination, by confession, and by being poised and ready to forgive and forgive well. That's where we're going next week. Let me pray. God, I'm thankful for your word. I'm thankful that we can find answers and understanding and insight and solutions and remedies in your word. Lord, I pray that you would guard us from just being consumers who go there just when we have a problem. But Lord, I'm thankful that when we do have things to work through, like the ever-present abundant conflict that surrounds us, that we have some good things that we can grab, things that are in keeping with your character, ways that we can move that will bring glory to you in and through the conflict. Lord, I pray that we as a people will be characterized as a people who don't run from conflict, but who walk in it confidently, seeking your glory. I pray that we'll be characterized as a people who serve others by working through conflict and not bailing on each other, not looking for a new church home, not looking for a new marriage or a new friendship or a new relationship, but who work through hard things because you're glorified in it. Lord, I pray that we can be a church that is growing to be like Christ through those conflicts as we work and walk through them. Lord, I pray that we can be a church that is characterized by true repentance. As we said this morning, that comes from you. We beg for that in us readily. We pray that we will run to repentance. And the expression of that will be confession. Thankful that you have ultimately forgiven us of our worst things through the finished work of Christ. And we enjoy him this morning as we continue with the supper and song. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Just like this uh, supper is a gift, uh, Ben mentioned that repentance is a gift. And I want to read a couple of passages and just touch on that a minute as we enter into this time of the gift of this supper. Acts 5.30 says, The God, Peter talking here, The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed hanging on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. So this is not something that we muster, this repentance. Ben mentioned that a while ago. It's not something that we conjure up. It's not something that we've created. And then a little later in the book of Acts, he says, As I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave them the same gift he gave them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus, who was I that I could stand in the way? He's saying this, this gospel of forgiveness is going out beyond our people. It's going out to the whole world. How am I supposed to stand in the way of that? When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying this. Then to the Gentiles, to everybody else, God has granted repentance that leads to life. And so as we receive this meal as a gift, 
We are a people that receive repentance as a gift. And even the step before that, in this journey to this meal, and that step before that, we're a people who welcome the grief, who welcome the godly grief that's associated with who we are and what we've done. And I'm telling you, that is attractive and it smells good. It looks crazy sometimes, but to a world that doesn't know that, it's attractive when, when, when they are a part of a people or they see and get to know a people who welcome the grief associated, accept the consequences. It's so much better than being around people who skirt and try and avoid the consequence, avoid the wrath, but we welcome the grief and then we welcome the repentance as a gift. And what do you do when you receive such a gift? You're humble. You're humbled and you're grateful. And so we're a people who are welcoming the grief, welcoming the gift of repentance, and we're humbled and we're grateful. Now, what do we get? What do we get when we welcome that grief and when we welcome this repentance? The gift of this sermon, when we welcome this equipment, what do we get in return? We don't get it shoved back in our face as contempt. We don't get treated in contempt when we come in this grief and we come in humbly and gratefully repenting. We don't get it shoved back in our face. What do we get? We get a banqueting table. We get a supper. We get a meal prepared for us, the meal of Jesus. And it leads to life. We know that when we welcome this grief, we welcome this repentance as a gift. We receive peace with God. We receive life. We receive a banqueting table. And that's not to say that we don't walk in the, in the circumstances and we don't walk in the consequences and we don't walk in that grief, but it serves to continually remind us to stay in that repentant mode, stay in that humility, stay in that gratefulness and enjoy the banquet. Enjoy the life and peace we have in Christ. And that's what we're offered via the gift of repentance. So as we take this meal, we take it as a gift. People who welcome grief and welcome repentance as a gift. Let me pray and then we'll take this meal together. Father, we are grateful and humbled for the gift of a celebratory banqueting meal but we are also knowing and reminded this morning that it comes through hard things. It comes through the, a godly grief. And just like Ben prayed, you'd produce in us. It comes through the hard work of repenting and confessing rightly. And I pray that we do that as we come to your table today. That we have the table manners of grief and repentance as we move into this time but that we would rest in who Jesus is and what he offers us in his body and his blood. We are grateful and we are humbled, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. July is, uh, yeah, it's still July, is an unusual time to have a lot of visitors in life of any church. And we're kind of in the season right now where we have folks that are here for the first time or first of a few times and maybe looking for a church home and I was a little nervous before the sermon because there's something in me that's thinking, man, this is, you know, when I grew up, you know, it was a 20-minute sermon, and if it went longer than that, then there were people there like, man, you can't say what needs to be said in 20 minutes, and we're out of here, <laughs> you know, and the guy, he'd be in trouble if he went over 20 minutes, and I don't know if that's your experience, but I, that was my experience, so I, you know, I can't not bring that to the pulpit, so I'm kind of thinking about y'all, feeling for y'all, but at the same time, I'm hopeful for y'all that, that you see that what we're doing here is equipping you for something. I read this in bed last night. I'm doing a read through the Bible thing, the McShay or McShane Bible reading plan. And last night, it had me in uh, Judges chapter 2, and something stood out to me. This is pretty cool. At the point of the Judges, they've conquered, or sort of, the promised land. Joshua and those elders with him have all died, and God gives the nation of Israel judges by this point. They should have eradicated the land of the Canaanites, all the Perizzites, all these otherites, the Hittites, Jebusites, but they didn't. They came just shy of that, so they sort of transgressed the covenant by not completely clearing the land. 
And God says this. He says, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died. The nation of Israel had been able to whip, fit Jericho and everybody else. I mean, except for Ai. It had a little blip on the radar there where Achan resulted in a little massacre there. But for the most part, they're seriously kicking some behind. I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel, excuse me, in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test by them, that is, in all Israel, who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan, it was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach them or to teach war to those who had not known it beforehand. God left those people there so the future Israelites would know war. I read that last night, and as we were finishing up this morning, it occurred to me that's what we are doing each week. We are equipping to do battle. People go AWOL on the battlefield when they say, I'm not going to work through that conflict. I can go find a new friendship. I can go find a new church. I can go find a new relationship. I can go find new whatever, new job. I'm not going to work through that mess. But we're equipping you right now to do war. Lightweights bail. Marines, my favorite. That's, that's who I'm going to say. That's who's going to win. Marines are equipped to do what Marines do. To bravely, boldly, confidently step out in hard places and deal with hard things for the glory of a Lord who is already victorious and seated in this session. See that? That's what we're doing here each week. Man, nobody's here to entertain you or stroke you or make much of you. We're making much of God. I hope you got that sense, visitors or not. This is about God's greatness. And I hope you realize, man, these, this is pretty serious. It is. Dealing with conflict is hard work, but it's good work. And you see the glory of the Lord.